You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. In 2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey, welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer, my co-host, Max Linsky, and the out of it's Evan Ratliff. Hey. Hey, hey. guys. Hey. What's up, guys? I've uh, got a great show for you today. Aaron, who'd you talk to? Kevin Roos. Uh, he's got a new book out called Young Money. Uh, he's been covering Wall Street and the banking industry for a few years. Not that many years, because he's very young. But uh, he's done how young, some- How young is he? He's like 25, 26 years old, maybe. God damn it. It's outrageous. That's his second book, I think. It's preposterous. His second book. He talked, his first book came out when he was in college. Um, he was with DealBook for a while, and then he writes for New York now. And uh, I don't know if he's going to be able to continue to cover Wall Street after this book. It seems like there's uh, something of a hunt on for him. But uh, the book's really great. I uh, just finished it, and uh, he was a great interview. All right. Looking forward to that one. Do we have any sponsors this week? I don't know. Do we have any sponsors this week? Evan, I, just, I was just throwing it to you. <laughs> I, I I don't know the you don't, I don't know the rap I don't have pit, the rap. You're a pitcher, not a catcher. <laughs> <laughs> I can't transition like that. Our sponsor this week is Tiny Letter from the good people at Mailchimp. It's a uh, it's a really easy way to start sending people information. I feel like the word newsletter is almost misleading. You can you could make it anything. Uh, I I have uh, one piece of sad news, guys. This what? is the uh, this is our last show being edited by Lauren Kirchner. She's moved on to uh, bigger and better things. I think we should overdub taps. <laughs> <laughs> Lauren, overdub taps. Um, <laughs> she's been great. She's been yeah. a fantastic editor. She's, she's really like uh, the the heart and soul of the show. I, w- when we started, we were like, do we need an editor? And we definitely needed an editor, and, and she has shaped what this show is. And we thank her very much for her um, many months of service. And if you're if you're a listener, regular listener, find her on Twitter and say thanks. She's yeah. on Twitter, Love and also person. go read the Bafflers website because that's where she's going to be working. Yeah, she's going to go be the managing editor of the Bafflers website, and she's still going to be in the in the neighborhood here in Dumbo. So um, she'll she'll drop in. Maybe we'll get a guest edit from her at some point. Yeah. Well, congrats, Lauren, and uh, and thank you. Here's Aaron yeah. with Kevin Roos. Kevin Roos. Thanks for having me. Are you are you on a book tour right now? 
I mean, I wouldn't call it a tour, but I'm I'm doing a lot of uh, <laughs> tour media. by cab. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I have seen a lot of green rooms this week. So, like, for someone who is generally um, on the reportorial grind, is this like a vacation for you, or is this like hell for you? Well, it, it's I I would never call it hell because it's good when your like book gets attention, right? Yeah. Like, it's better. You know, I could be sitting in my sweatpants, like like just having no one care. Yeah. Uh, so th- these are good problems to have, but it, it has not been exactly relaxing, I would say. It's been yeah. like, you know, a lot of like early morning stuff. And, and But I again, I can't complain because then I sound like a total tool. So actually, let's, I'd, I'd like to go back and talk about, uh, before we get, your book is now out, but we'll get to that. Um, you wrote a book in college. Yeah. Um, which is called The Unlikely Disciple. Um, what led up to the point where you were writing a book while you were in college? Uh, it was sort of this crazy confluence of events. I was working, I I, I was a, like a freshman in college. I knew I wanted to be a writer. So I, I always, whenever someone says that, I stop them and I'm like, what did what is that? What did that mean? Actually, when you're 18, because I feel like a lot of people knew they wanted to be a writer when they're 18 that I knew, but it must have meant something different to you. No, I, it didn't really. It was like I had this vague notion that I was going to major in English and like write for the school newspaper. And that's like about as far as it extended. And then I started like, so I applied for a bunch of magazine internships, like 20 of them, like, you know, all I just sort of like blanketed New York City with magazine internship applications. And I like got rejected from all of them. And, uh, like, I got one interview that was at, like, National Geographic for kids or something like that. And I, did, <laughs> and I didn't even get that. So I was, like, feeling very sorry for myself. Um, so I, out of sort of half desperation, I, uh, I wrote to uh, this guy named A.J. Jacobs, uh, who you may know or have heard of, who is an author of, among other things, The Year of Living Biblically. America's uh, leading stunt journalist. America's leading say. stunt journalist. So I had never met him, didn't know him from a hole in the ground, but I knew that he had gone to my college. I really liked his book, uh, his first book, which was about reading the encyclopedia. And, and so I wrote him this email. Like I found his website. Uh, he had a contact email address on there. So I, I wrote him this big, long email and said, you know, dear Mr. Jacobs, uh, I'm a freshman in college. I really want to be a writer. I really like your work. Um, like, could I come work for you? next summer for free and like, you know, get your dry cleaning or whatever. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I wasn't expecting to hear back. This was the, I didn't send more of these letters. This was like my one hail Mary. And, uh, and like 20 minutes later he wrote back and he was like, you know, this sounds great. And actually it's, it's funny that you asked because I'm writing this book about trying to live by all the rules in the Bible. Um, which that would have been a bummer. That's like, of all his books, the worst one to have to like interact with him during. (laughs) Well, it it ended up being a little bit uh, more unorthodox than that because then the next thing he said was, and I've been having trouble figuring out how to follow the parts of the Bible that talk about slavery. Uh, So he says, you know, you can come and be my sort of like research assistant for the summer, but only if I can call you my biblical slave. So 
I uh, I thought about that for about thirty seconds. And so, so you were gonna like go to a, a strange city with a man you had never met and become <laughs> his slave? Is it... Exactly, exactly. My what, did, what did your parents think of this? <laughs> they were skeptical. Uh, yeah. They 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 didn't know whether he was running some sort of like you know S and M operation or something. But they they had also heard of his previous books, so that helped. Yeah. Um, so I I went to New York City. I I got a job at a juice bar. Um, and then, you know, in my spare time, I worked for AJ. And uh, one of the things that he did with me was we went down to Virginia to this college that Jerry Falwell had started, the famous sort of televangelist, right-wing preacher. Um, Liberty University was the name. And, uh, and AJ was trying to interview some of Falwell's sort of henchmen. So he took me down there with him on the plane, and we, we went, and I was sort of going to be his assistant during this trip. And he was off doing some interviews, and I struck up a conversation with Liberty students uh, who studied under Jerry Falwell. And, like, I was not religious at all. Like, I, I had no religion growing up, basically. My parents are, like, secular Quakers who worked for Ralph Nader in the 1970s. Yeah. Um, so I was, like, and I, and I went to Brown, you know, which is, like, sort of this, like, communist, <laughs> <laughs> like, like half-communist uh, utopia. So I went uh, to Wesley, and you're in a safe place. Exactly yeah. right. We're we're among we're among uh, fellow travelers here. So I I was like shocked by these people and their existence. Yeah. And I started talking to them, and they started telling me, you know, okay, we're not allowed to drink, we're not allowed to smoke, dance, watch R-rated movies. I mean, it was like Footloose before the fun. Uh, so it was it was the like the most conservative place I could imagine. So I was like I was sort of fascinated and. Working with AJ had gotten me sort of in the stunt book uh, mentality. And so I sort right. of thought, well, what if I like transferred from the most liberal school in America to like the most conservative school in America and like spent a semester there undercover? I'm I, I'm intrigued. Like when I was 18 years old, if I had gone and seen the the kids at Falwell University, I would have been like, well, I'm like totally fucking out of place here. But I would have not even sort of gotten into that conversation did you have a sort of reportorial instinct where you were able to like, how, how did those sort of early discussions take place? Were you thinking, I want to write a book. I, I need a concept. I mean, no, not at all. I was, I was actually like just curious. I was talking to them. It was yeah. really awkward. Like they were saying, you know, trying to figure out if I was saved or not. And like, I could barely understand what that meant. And so they were sort of asking me, we were sort of just feeling each other out, the Liberty students and I, and like it wasn't till the plane ride back when I was sort of mentioning this to to AJ and and I think he said something like well you know you should you should write about this like and I wasn't I mean I was I had barely written for my school newspaper at that point and so I I thought about it and and I thought well maybe I could do a magazine article and get some access and and uh, do it that way and then I started reading up on Liberty and like there was no way they were going to let me come and be a reporter and like spend time on campus right so I like feverishly wrote up you know I asked AJ like what a book proposal was and how you did it and he showed me some samples and so I spent one night like cramming out this uh this book proposal um that turned into the unlikely disciple so I transferred during my sophomore year Spent a semester undercover at uh, at Liberty University and and uh, and like did the thing. It was it was really serendipitous and it was did not stem at all from any desire that I had previously had to like start writing books at that age. 
I'm interested. Um, I just finished. I just finished Young Money, which is your new book, which is available on Amazon.com, and I will link to it in the show notes. <laughs> and um, in both of these projects, there was certainly a sort of danger of condescending towards the subjects that um, that you were following. Probably more so even with the Christian students, but also there's not a lot of goodwill out there towards young Wall Street analysts. Was that something that was on your mind when you started writing about these people? Was I need to sort of give them a dignity or I need to make sure that this isn't just making fun of a Christian university? No, I think when I when I started the 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 Christian University book, I fully intended to to like mock the shit out of them. Like I <laughs> right. fully intended to like You were 19. Yeah, yeah. I was 19. <laughs> yeah. I was like going to go be Hunter S. Thompson and make them all look terrible and it was uh, like, I see. So this was like a like a it was a Gonzo pro- like less on the like AJ Jacobs like sort of stunt thing and more like a full-on Gonzo. Sort of. I mean, and I didn't know what I was going to find, but yeah. I had a pretty clear idea that these people were very conservative and yes. kind of homophobic. And like not all that like with it when it comes to, you know, pop culture. Right. So I was, you know, I was prepared. I, you know, I remember like I, I read this like book about like how to talk like a Christian. And it was all about like saying, you know, glory instead of like cursing when you stub your toe or something. So I, I went down there and I started saying like glory, you know, and people are just looking at me like no <laughs> one actually talks like that. They just say crap, you know. Yeah. So. Uh, I think, you know, in that case, um, what what happened was that, like, I just I just had to write what I saw. And what I saw was not like people who were mockable. It was it was people who were conservative and sometimes homophobic, but really lovely individuals and people that I ended up becoming very close with. And I didn't convert or come to, like, love Jerry Falwell. But, you know, I. I couldn't in good conscience like have the semester that I had there and then come back and totally trash these people because that just wasn't the experience I had. Did you maintain a relationship with anyone from the college afterwards? Yeah, I still do. Oh, I, really? st- I still talk to some of them. What, so. what, what's become of their lives? Like my Actually, my biggest question after reading your book was like, I wonder what's going to happen to all these people in 20 years. And I don't know, what are you, about 10, 10 to 15 years down the road from that? What what are most of those uh, Falwell students up to? Uh, well, they're all married uh, with like four or five kids at this yeah. point. Like um, they're, most of them are, you know, five years out of college now. And, um, and I think they are living um, lives that are, really happy and they seem happy from their Facebook photos of their beautiful <laughs> cherubic children and and uh, and some of them are pastors and some of them are working um, you know in in consulting or I mean they're just like they're like spread all over the country like regular college students uh, they just happen to be like going to church on Sundays and what do they think of like your your life path as uh, a journalist? I mean, like they they thought I was weird when I was there, right? Because they could like sense that something was off about me because I didn't know anything. Like I was, I I had never read the Bible. Like I was not like I I like <laughs> you didn't even go that far in your preparation. <laughs> well, I, I read. I mean, it's it's a long book. It's yeah. like it's like a lot of boring parts in the Old Testament. So I sort of you know skimmed it, but like I you know I would make mistakes. Like I'd call it. Um, Philippians instead of Philippians and they just look at me like like you know who is this weirdo um and so actually they, they admitted later that they thought I was gay um uh, and that that's why I was acting so so strangely because I was covering up the fact that I was gay 
The, uh, the, the best way to avoid people uh, is to cover up being gay is to not know the Bible. Right. <laughs> right exactly. <laughs> so, uh, but they were shocked when I when I sort of outed myself to them. But I think they were also glad that I treated them humanely. Um, they they forgave me, um, yeah. all of them. It was really crazy to me, and and I still don't quite understand how they managed it, except that Christianity is like big on forgiveness, and these people are true believers. So, from putting out that, how how long did it take for that book to come out after you? Uh, I you know? I went there in two thousand seven, and it came out in two thousand nine. Two thousand nine. So. You graduated from your actual. Did you get your tr- the credits transfer? Or you no, that I a tried. Black, black hole. For no, you? no. Brown was not keen on not letting creationism count toward my my uh, degree. Oh, yeah. So you therefore had to go to college one more semester and then finished up Brown. And how did you, at that point, having this experience under your belt? What what did you want to do with yourself? I I wanted to write something else. I mean, yeah. I, I wanted to find another book topic. Um, I had learned a lot. I felt like I could do a better job on a second one. Um, and I was looking for sort of another subculture. Yeah. Uh, I didn't want to be pigeonholed as a religion writer. I didn't know what else to write about. I moved to New York just sort of because that was where the media was. And I knew I wanted to sort of be in, you know, in league with other writers. And I started sort of casting around and, and, uh, eventually like I got really curious about wall street bankers so, but like, how were you like paying your rent at this point when you moved to New York? Well, I I had some money from the first book. Oh, okay. um, that was uh, that was what kept me, uh, you know, a roof over my head for the first few months. And then I started doing some freelance stuff for magazines. I picked up you know the odd like blog post here or there. Um, so I I was I was making ends meet, and I was also you know thinking, okay, I should probably write another book you know, soon before the, you know, while there is a book business. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, uh, and so I, I wanted the, the quality that I was looking for in a second book was like, I wanted to find another subculture of people that was like widely despised, um, that I could somehow like not like sympathize with, but just sort of humanize, like just go inside and show that these are not like cartoon characters. These are like real people. And put some sort of faces to the to the sort of stereotypes. Um, and so this, you came up with the, the concept for this book um, before you started doing, like, financial reporting. Yeah. Ah, okay. Yeah. I, I was trying to figure out that chronology. Okay. Yeah, so I, I was... That was, was part of your deep cover? <laughs> exactly, exactly. So I was... It was 2010. Like, everyone hated Wall Street. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, I was like in New York and I saw these people my age like going into banking and I was like why why would you do like why Um, I know it pays well but everyone's gonna hate you and then I was at this dinner party when I finally decided to to write that I know that that this was the book that I wanted to write Um, I was at a dinner party with some friends and uh, we were all sort of like it was like a a bunch of 20-somethings and a bunch of people our parents age and uh, everyone was going around the table sort of saying what they did. And, you know, people were saying, I'm a writer, I'm a teacher. Uh, and it got to this one uh, young woman, and she sort of, like, looked a little panicked. And, and she said, you know, oh, I, I, I work downtown. And everyone was sort of like, well, well, what do you what do? You do? I mean, that's pretty vague. And yeah. she said, well, I, I work in finance. And, uh, and they said, well, 
like where what are you what are you what are you doing in finance and finally she sort of mustered up the courage and she said i work at goldman sachs and i remember thinking like that is crazy that she is embarrassed about that because you know five years earlier two years earlier like that would have been the first thing you said when you met someone like hi i'm john i work at goldman sachs like that was what you led with and to her it was a source of great shame and I just thought that was really interesting. Like, how do you cope with being part of this sort of villainized industry when you're 22 and you didn't have anything to do with the crisis, which is why everyone hates Wall Street? Like, you didn't cause that. Hi, everyone. This is Evan Ratliff, uh, Aaron's co-host. I want to interrupt Aaron and Kevin for just one minute. Uh, to talk about a couple of things, one Atavist-related, one podcast-related. Uh, we have a new Atavist story out. It's called Love and Ruin. It's by James Verini. You can find it on the Atavist website at atavist.com or in our app or in the Kindle Singles store. It is a story of uh, love, romance, uh, archaeology, war, and Afghanistan. Uh, it's got a lot to it. You should check it out. And on the podcast front, if you are attending South by Southwest or if you are in the greater Austin, Texas area, uh, we're going to be at South by Southwest doing a live podcast in conjunction with Texas Monthly and ASME, the American Society of Magazine Editors. We have an incredible lineup of guests. We've got Mimi Schwartz. We've got Pam Koloff, who's been on the podcast before. And we've got Lawrence Wright. So that's going to be Saturday, uh, March 8th. If you're around, come check it out. There's a uh, pointer to it on the Longform site, longform.org slash SXSW. And uh, you can go RSVP and everything. There's going to be barbecue and beer afterwards. All right. Here's Aaron and Kevin again. So, I mean, did you did you feel like, as opposed to the Christian thing, that you needed a technical background to get into this stuff? Or were you, like, really just concerned with the sort of story of the people? Well, I knew I wasn't going to get like the whole technical background. I mean, right. I, I took one econ course uh, at Brown. Well, I shouldn't, have, I actually didn't take it. Um, I dropped it after three weeks because it was like over my head and I, I was not, I was an English major. So I knew I wasn't going to like, I mean, I, I briefly considered going undercover at a bank. Um, and I even like, I remember I even like made a little resume for myself, like that I was going to submit to some banks. Um but it was just like laughable. Like I was never going to get hired. Like I mean, you didn't even get hired at National Geographic. Right. <laughs> right. They, I mean, they weren't going to hire me to like clean the floors at Goldman Sachs. Yeah. So, um, and I also thought, you know, Google will give you away. Uh, after, I feel like one undercover book is all you get these days uh, before the jig is up. It's true. I hadn't thought about that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Unless you like change, like Barbara Ehrenreich, who also writes great undercover books, like actually had to change her name legally right. to do a second one. I was not quite prepared to, to go that far. So um, I thought, you know, here's an interesting subculture and how close can I get to this without actually having to go undercover? Um, and so I just started sort of trying to find bankers and like get them to talk to me. So what is that? What is that process? Like, cause like I assumed that you, when you started this book, cause I know I, I had been reading your stuff in like deal book and the times that you sort of had a reservoir of uh, financial context to draw on, but starting from scratch, how did you start tracking down people who'd want to be in this book? It was like, it was, it was just desperation. It was like asking my friends if they knew anyone who knew anyone who like worked in finance. It was like taking a lot of, people out to coffee and like 
you know, begging them to help me. It was. And what was your to, pitch? Like, I'm um, like 21. I just graduated from <laughs> Princeton. I'm about to start my job at Goldman. What, what do you tell someone like that? Uh, I said, you know, I'm a writer and uh, and I want to write a book about young Wall Street and I want you to talk to me for it. And, and what and, if I lose, like I could lose my job. And and that's what they all said. And then yeah. they, you know, said, check, please. And then they left and said <laughs> no. So it took a long time before I was able to get eight people to actually agree to, to do this. How many coffees? Like what, what percentage yes did you get? I, I mean, I, I probably got about a, I would say a, a, uh, I took 50 people out maybe Whoa. before I found eight. Uh, and it, to the to their credit like the other 42 are like smart like they should not have talked to me it yeah. was not smart of them uh, because banks are notoriously press averse and people get fired all the time for talking to the media without permission and if any of these guys even hinted that they were participating in something like this at work they would have been immediately fired so i don't understand. one of the characters is like a is like the only black analyst and is like six foot seven and when i read that i was like <laughs> there's only one guy who's that guy well to to get them to agree what i find is that like really like a five foot tall white man <laughs> yes <laughs> it's it's, it's a, yes so i um you know, as part of the agreement with each of these eight people, I, I told them, you know, basically, look, I will change your name. Yeah. I will change enough details about you so that you feel comfortable that this will not ruin your life. Yeah. Um, and, you know, what that meant was I was basically letting them craft their own sort of like, you know, stats sheet. If mm-hmm. they if they wanted if they only wanted me to change their names, I only changed their names. If they wanted me to change, you know like other things about them, including, you know, the, the division they worked in or what college they went to or whatever, um, you know, then I, I went with that. But basically that was the only way I was going to get anyone to, to talk to me was if I, you know, if I allowed them to set the terms of their own anonymity. Is there a witch hunt out for these eight people right now? Uh, yeah. 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 Tell me about, I mean, uh, what have you heard? Uh, well, I've, I've talked to some people at the banks. Um, they are, very curious. Um, I have also noticed um, some people, you know, tra- trying to track me through social media from some of the the compliance departments at the big banks, trying to figure out who I'm connected with on like LinkedIn and stuff mm. like that. So there's, there's, I mean, they are intensely curious about who these people are. Um, you know, as I imagine any big corporation would be, um, but especially so because this was such an act of of. Uh, sort of this is such a renegade act on their part and I mean are you paranoid like do, do, do you see your email get hacked I mean are you in dealing with these like companies that are known to be fairly ruthless they're totally ruthless and I uh, I am I mean I've been what I think is pretty careful I you know I never communicate with these people over their work email um, I never call them at work uh I have, you know, taken down files. I I don't use a service like Dropbox or anything uh, that's in the cloud to store the real contact information or personal information of these people. So, you know, I wouldn't say I've like I've gone like full, you know, Glenn Greenwald like Edward Snowden, but I I'm I'm fairly careful, and I you know I hope that um, 
I think that actually the banks would never attempt something like that because if they got caught uh, and I made it a story, it would just give me extra publicity. Right. You know, and I think they don't want to do anything to sort of like make it seem like they're too concerned about this book. Well, and and to be fair, um, I thought in reading the book that Wall Street got about as fair a shake as they're going to get. I mean, I understand that like no one is ever happy with their portrayal on a journalistic account. If anything, it's extremely deglamorizing account of being a entry level analyst. Um, there's not a lot of cocaine and strippers and there is a lot of really, really like boring all night like Excel sessions. Boring all night Excel sessions and and depression. I mean, yep. th- th- this is like a really the the difference between sort of the stereotypical Wolf of Wall Street like coke and strippers thing yep. and what actually happens is night and day and like these guys are working a uh, hundred hours a week usually um, you know their boyfriends and girlfriends break up with them because they haven't seen them in a month uh, family members get estranged their health uh, takes a turn for the worse I mean it is a really destructive way to spend your first two years out of college and of course all of this comes with the caveat that even these bankers would make that of course they are phenomenally lucky to be being paid as much as they are uh, to do this work they're making you know Ninety thousand to one hundred and thirty thousand dollars a year as twenty-two year olds, which is insane. Yeah. Um, but even given that sort of overarching caveat, you know, you can sort of feel sympathetic for these guys because I don't think a lot of them sort of understand what they're getting themselves into. So you were working a day job while you were doing this book, right? I was at the New York Times first, um, covering Wall Street, and then I was at uh, New York Magazine, also uh, covering covering Wall Street, Wall Street and, and business. So, well, a, how how did you get hired as a financial reporter? Well, I it was it was sort of an interesting backwards process, and I I attribute a lot of it to luck. Um, but as I was going out with these young bankers, um, so this, the the book started first, and I was yep. interviewing young bankers, and I'd go out with them, and like we'd go out and and get drunk and they would be, you know, telling me about stuff on the trading floor and and like sometimes they would tell me like about a deal they were working on, like confidential like like the stuff you could insider trade on, like yeah. stuff that they are definitely not supposed to be talking about with anyone, much less reporters. So I was like, you know, to myself I'm thinking, well, this is going to be no use in 2 or 3 years when this book is is done. But like this would actually I could get rich now, right? This right, exactly. <laughs> if I knew how to trade, I could get rich now. Or, it, but more, more importantly, like it could be in the newspaper tomorrow, yeah. and it would be breaking news. So, um, you know, and I thought I wanted to sort of be working as a as a financial journalist to sort of learn the stock and trade um, while I was writing this book. So I, I, you know, after I got a number of these sort of story ideas from the, the young bankers I was talking to, I wrote to, uh, you know, a guy at the New York times. I ended up talking with Andrew Ross Sorkin at the New York times who runs deal book. Um, he brought me in. I was sort of like, look, you know, I'm, I'm no expert, but I, I do know young people on wall street and I'm, I want to write about the culture there. And, and he, uh, he bought it. So I, I was. Uh, so wait, let me, let me understand yeah. if this correctly. You were using tips that you had gotten for the subjects from the book for ideas for stories to write about in the New York Times. In some cases, yes. Isn't that sort of 
doubling or perhaps even tripling down on the sort of volatility and risks that are associated <laughs> with this under, with this project. Not only are you um, maintaining these confidential informants who would definitely get fired, but you're also writing articles based on things you learned from them. Yes. I mean, it, this was a very risky proposition from beginning to end. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, what did the Times think about that? The time, I mean, the Times was happy to, to you know, I, I think I, I managed to convince them that I could do more than just go out drinking with young bankers. And eventually I wrote stories that had nothing to do with young bankers. I covered mergers. I, I did stories about private equity. I mean, yeah. I really, uh, you know, I covered most of uh, the, the sort of financial sector. Um, but in the beginning, it was sort of all these weird little culture stories that I wanted to write. I wanted to write about like, how all the holiday parties at the banks had had gotten smaller because the financial crisis had shrunk the budgets and no one wanted to be seen like out partying while the bailouts were happening so you know all these sad little bankers like didn't have their christmas parties anymore yeah so did um as you learned more about the the actual sort of technical you know the day-to-day reported world of wall street rather than the sort of zoomed out 22-year-olds over two years part. Did that knowledge inform your book? Absolutely. I mean, it, it, it meant that I was able to ask better questions of mm. the eight people. I, I, I knew what I was talking about, finally. Um, when I started out, I, w- I, you know, I barely could tell you what like a, a bond was. Um, and I did, you know, I, I did study a lot. I went to an Excel boot camp. I read a stack of books. I, you know, I, I really tried to start watching CNBC every day and reading yeah. the Wall Street Journal. But that can only take you so far. And, and through reporting on it daily, I was able to really like understand how banks make money, um, what the various divisions do, what different financial products look like. Um, and that meant that I was able to sort of probe better with, with these eight young bankers. And were you, I mean, what was that learning curve like as you picked that stuff up? I mean, were you like, making boners left and right and like <laughs> <laughs> yeah i i i uh i don't think i ever referred to them as boners but i uh, i did um i remember i was it was like one of my first uh weeks at the new york times as like you know a junior reporter like one of the youngest reporters they had ever hired like yeah. i'm already feeling totally incompetent like why am i here in these halls of power like i don't i'm a total imposter and i um and i like somebody got sick or something so i was i had to do like the morgan stanley like earnings story so the quarterly financial reports when they come out you have to write them up they have to be like very accurate because people trade based on them um they have to be very quick so it's like one of the more like it's like at once like very boring and very exciting because like no one ever like makes news in these it's just numbers but it's like the, the stakes are high so I like got pulled into duty doing Morgan Stanley's earnings and like they uh, like the like head of PR for Morgan Stanley like called me up and was like, what the hell are you doing? Like after my story came out because I had gotten some things wrong or like didn't emphasize mm. the right parts. Um, so it was I mean, th- there, it was a steep learning curve. And I will say that I think um, my colleagues were very patient with me. And eventually I think I, I got up to speed. Did uh did this change your relationship to the subject of the books where it was like, hey, before I was just a guy who was like a secretly following you to t- write about your life. Side note, I'm also writing for DealBook now <laughs> and I'm maybe using some of the things you've said about the finance world. Well, I was always very clear with them that if they told me something 
um, and I wanted to use it in the paper or in deal book, I would ask. Um, You know, we would assume that the things we're talking about were for the book, and if I wanted to also use it Mm. in some other capacity, you know, I would I would seek their permission first before I did that. How deep? I mean, how deep are the uh, the journalistic tentacles in Wall Street? Like, when you're getting tips from 22 year olds who probably have the shittiest tips of anyone, like how how big are the networks of people within these Wall Street firms who are sort of feeding some of the insider information? It's not out? very big. I mean, I don't, I don't know because yeah. no one you know talks about who their sources are. My hunch is that it's like a handful of people. You know, it's like because basically when you're when you're leaking something to the media, and most things are leaked, most things are not discovered, right? Um, unless someone leaves a merger document in the back of a cab, which happens sometimes, or you know, someone overhears someone on the Acela train like talking about a private equity deal. Yeah. That happens like once in a blue moon. Most things are leaked strategically. So if you want to, you know, screw your competitor, or if you want to, like, you know, test the market's reaction to some merger that you're thinking about doing, like you'll sort of feed nuggets to your favorite reporter, right? Um, and they're like. You know, my like uninformed guess would be that there are about like thirty or forty of these people who who do these sort of nugget drops um, to to various reporters to serve their sort of selective corporate purposes. I always wonder like whether leak like leaking is sort of a personality type, and as a result, uh, it's a psychological sort of makeup, and that as a result, any organization of a certain size will eventually have leakers. I mean, it's sort of one of the crazy parts about the military and this Snowden stuff is like, wait, you have like hundreds of thousands of people working here. Like, you're going to get all kinds of people. Right, you of definitely averages. have a leaker, you know, and, and sort of the same thing with Wall Street, where it's like, you had a bunch of disgruntled people working a l- serious overtime. How could there not be leakers? Right. And that's what happened with that guy, Greg Smith, who wrote that op-ed in the Times about why he was quitting Goldman Sachs. And that was sort of like, you know, he was the sort of leaker type. Um, oh, Greg Smith, the uh, third place winner in the Maccabee Games ping pong competition. <laughs> that, that Greg Smith? Bronze medalist. Bronze medalist. Bronze medalist. Um, there are so many, like, so many Jewish men who are like... Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I think I think it's surprising that more stuff doesn't leak. Although I will say that, like, you know, I think probably part of it is that um, journalists don't tend to like socialize with with bankers outside the sort of confines of their job. Like, you know, like I don't know a lot of reporters who like hang out on the Upper East Side and, like, go play at the New York Athletic Club, like, go play squash. And, like, there are very few reporters who, like, sort of inhabit the social space of of, of, of the Wall Streeters that they write about. Uh, so I think that creates sort of a divide, like a social divide. Like, you know, the reporters, like, are reporters and they, like, live in Brooklyn and like, wear plaid I cannot afford to buy a drink here. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> I'll have a water. Right, exactly. And then other people they are writing about live in Connecticut. You know? Right. I mean, do you think that's actually a danger? Like, as these things, as reporting gets worse and worse paid, and banking gets better and better paid, that literally there's sort of no cultural access. I, th- I mean, I think so. I think a few people wind up with most of the access, um, and I think that's you know, like I'm not a total opponent of access journalism. I, I will say, I, I, I'm, you know, I think like you need both kinds. You need like the hard hitting investigative stuff and the stuff that like relies on 
you know, knowing the lawyer who's working on the deal about the merger that, you know, that, that can sort of feed you the information. But I think people on Wall Street are very strategic. They want to control the flow of information. And I, I think what's made them crazy about this book uh, that just came out is that that they had no control over it. Right. Um, and I think it's driving them nuts. And I mean, it's interesting you say that because my when I when I read the book, um, this is going to sound negative, but I don't mean it in a negative <laughs> way. Were you worried midway through when you're you know h- how long was the total writing process from when uh, you first met them to like now? Like four years. Four years. Like holy shit! These this is all these people are all fucking boring. Like this is <laughs> their jobs are totally fucking boring. And when you pull back the curtain, there's nothing shocking or salacious in fact these are kind of not the most interesting people personally i've ever like read about and their jobs are kind of boring like the the grand reveal is that wall street is kind of boring yes and no i mean i i was worried about that too i thought you know sometimes i wish it were cocaine and strippers um but it's i actually found like the stories that they were telling really interesting. I mean, it's mm-hmm. really interesting that someone comes into an industry that's being vilified, um, not vil- not you know, vilified implies that it was like undeserved or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> I've been vilified, <laughs> sir. Right. Come into an industry that's like hated. Yeah. And, um, and, and, and be sort of naive about what it means to work on wall street and be like, and have the scales like fall from their eyes and realize that they've gotten themselves into something that like they don't necessarily want to be part of like that's a really interesting coming of age tale like forget about wall street like set that anywhere you want like the story of a 22 year old um coming into an industry because he or she doesn't know what else to do with his life yeah um wanting to sort of stay on this prestigious path i mean there's a there's a there's a guy in my book who you know went to work at goldman sachs um you know, because he like he thought that would be doing good for the world, and that right. seems so crazy to us, like as outsiders. Yeah. But when when the recruiters come to your college and they say like, we are financing like developments in low income communities, and we're doing renewable energy investing, and like they can convince twenty two year olds that they are helping the world by going to work at Goldman Sachs, and then when when he got there, this guy. Like one of the first conversations he had was with the guy who became his eventual boss. And the guy said, look, like, we're not here to save the world. Like, we're just here to make money. And that seems like such an obvious and banal observation. But if you're 22 and you have invested yourself in this idea that you are not selling your soul by going to work for this company and all of a sudden like the truth is revealed to you, like that's a really painful thing. And that's something that I think a lot of people can sort of relate to. And so even though the, like the, the make sitting there making the Excel spreadsheets isn't all that inter- interesting, like what's going on inside these people's heads actually was very interesting to me. It's, a, I mean, I like to read about cults and like, there's a lot of cult shit happening. There's a lot of like the, totally. the hallmarks of, of a cult mentality. Except that cults take your money and Wall Street gives you money. Well, that I mean, that's what's <laughs> always, it's the same deflating feeling. Like I, you're, the book has a really beautiful arc because of it where, you know, at the end of the cult, you always find out like after all this mumbo jumbo and all of this sort of elevated talk, it's like, eh, it's just the leader wanted to have sex with a bunch of people <laughs> and get some money. And it's like the same thing. These guys come in, they, they leave with less ideas than they come in with. Right. You, you, it's, it's all very simple sort of by the time you, you've run it, but you have to run, you have to do a lot of crazy shit 
to get in the cult, you have to be hazed, really. I mean, I, I think hazing is probably the closest yeah. uh, corollary to this kind of stuff. But there was one sort of cult idea that, that really struck me um, that I think carries through a lot of um, business, like business writing and writing about Wall Street. And you, you'll see people sort of casually toss it off. And, and I'm wondering what you sort of think about it. Where, and some, I can't remember who in the book actually says this, but there's this idea that companies... Um, particularly banks, but just anyone who has shareholders have a responsibility to make money. That that there's this sort of um, we've imbued the corporation with this sociopathic um, blind drive to make money, and no one really explains what that means. But it sort of justifies anything, and it's very central to to buying into this life. That um, hey, there is no wrong and right here. Um, this is actually how everything works. This is a machine that runs. And the idea almost, it always reminded me of like Scientology or something where like a, a simple sort of innocuous idea then just sort of keeps snowballing. Where does that idea come from? And has that always been an idea in Wall Street? It hasn't. It, it traces itself back to the 80s, I think, and to the in, invention of this sort of like legal structure um, that gave companies what's called fiduciary duty, and that's basically it's the law that you have to do. You know, y- you can't like engage in something that you know, like you can't just like burn down your own building, like because that will be destructive to shareholder value. Right. Um, and it was meant to prevent like you know stupid stuff like that, like right. you know people you, know, you 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 have an obligation not to be a complete idiot, basically. Um, but over the course of time that concept of fiduciary duty and shareholder value has come to mean like anything goes like the scoreboard is the stock price. Right. Um, nothing else matters. Not so, only is the scoreboard, the stock price, it's the stock price right now, not right. over the next 10 years. Right. And so even if Jamie Dimon like gets fined $20 billion uh, because of what JP Morgan did, you know, over the last year, like as long as the stock price is high, like that's, it was that's, well, it was well it, worth it. Yeah, it's fine. Right. So I, I, and there's a really good chapter actually in, um, there's a book called liquidated by Karen Ho, who's a professor at the university of Minnesota, who's written about the culture of wall street. And she writes that like shareholder value is like, it's like the, it's like the 10 commandments, like all, it's like, it's like the fundamental belief that yeah, you are like, asked to it's accept. It's like being super, you know, Mario with the fireballs where you can, you can just do anything like well, but, as long but, as you embrace and it. And it's the thing that, that people like, it's the central lesson that people have to be taught when they're brought into Wall Street to, to become truly of Wall Street. You must accept the principle of shareholder value. And I, I thought that was like really interesting. And I can yeah. see that in these eight people as they sort of went through this process where they were like grappling with that, this idea and, uh, and you know, trying to sort of figure out whether they believed it or not. You wrote a, um, a profile of uh, Ray Dalio. Mm-hmm. Am I pronouncing that correct? I think it's Dalio. But Dalio. Yeah, it's a little bit more emphatic. Yeah. <laughs> um, so Ray Dalio is, if not the most successful, one of the most successful hedge fund managers in the world. I went, I went back and read that piece, and there's a difficulty, I think, when, when you write about money and finance where you can't explain the whole thing. You, you can't explain every trade that Dalio has made. Um, so what you end up doing is you end up 
describing them personally, their personal habits and the sort of managerial habits. Um, and there are some people who are real sort of masters of this form. I mean, I think of like Michael Lewis, like in, in Moneyball, is like the entire story about changes in the game of baseball all told through this character of Billy Bean. Yeah. So when you have a like a something like Ray Dalio, like what what was your approach there, and how do you how do you write around the essential difficulty of you can't really give away Ray Dalio's secret because you don't know it. Well, and I'm not smart enough to understand it. Like yeah. Ray Dalio is a genius. Yeah. Um, I, I think he's, uh, you know, he's for sort of background, he's like developed this enormous hedge fund that runs sort of according to this principle that he calls radical transparency where where, you know, everything is logged and recorded. And if you have a problem with someone, you're supposed to tell it to their face. Um, you know, everyone is given very blunt feedback all the time. It's like a very intense work atmosphere. And he has this like manifesto, this epic manifesto called principles that every Bridgewater employee is given on their first day. And it's like sort of like the founding document of this company. So it's, it's a little cultish in that way. Um, but I, I think that if, you know, when I was writing about him, I wanted to capture, of course, the essential weirdness of of the culture of this place, which from everyone I've spoken to who has worked there or known people who've worked there is like one of the oddest work environments in the world, um, but also enormously successful. So I wanted to sort of capture that. But like, you're right, you can't explain. And, and no one would, would want to read how how they make money because it's boring. It's like they're doing giant currency trades right. and they're like you know the stuff that would put you to sleep and and I you know I was writing this for New York magazine which is you know has a, a sophisticated audience but it's not a financial trade publication sure. so what was interesting to me was was Ray and his you know story and how he came to be this like titan of Wall Street he he you know essentially has has revolutionized the way that like hedge funds think about themselves and his he's like this management guru now and and i thought that was even more interesting in some ways than like how he made his money and so the question of like the question of how these crazy legitimately pretty wild management techniques connect to these amazing returns for you as a reporter that's just you, you, you've kind of got to leave that lying there. You can't make the, there's no direct smoking gun. I mean, that that's, that's what I'm always wondering about is like, do you attribute those management techniques to his returns or are they just sort of like weird coincidences? I don't know. That's, an, I mean, I, I sort of thought about that a lot while I was writing yeah. and you're right. I did decide to sort of leave the gap there and just yeah. say like, a, they're crazy, uh, and B, they're really successful, and you know maybe these are correlated, and and maybe these maybe there's a causal relationship here. Um, I think probably that that actually there is some causation there. Like it really, people who who work there are fiercely loyal to it, and they speak of it. I mean, and you can see this in some like you know some of the places I've worked. Like people just won't criticize each other, like, and they're they're nice to the point of being sort of like like elliptical about everything and like no one like things that should take 10 seconds take two hours because no one wants to say the thing that like needs to be said so i think there is something to a workplace culture where you know 
if like if I think you're like terrible at your job, like I come up to you and say like, you know, Aaron, you're terrible at your job. And you say, well, you know, you're terrible at your job. And then we like hash it out. And then we out. like record it and put it in a secret archive. <laughs> exactly. So I think there's something to that. It just also really takes a special kind of person to work at a place like that. Right. When you're reporting on the on these, these um, people, uh, whether they're at the bottom or the top, um, do you feel like that the human dimensions of them has the has the possibility to sort of distract people from the larger like societal and economic things that they're doing? I mean, is that like a tension for you when you write about personalities on Wall Street that it's kind of obscuring the like what's happening part? Or do you feel like it's an integral part of that story? I mean, I feel like one of the things I, I tried to get out in the book was to say that like the you know, the financial sector is sort of this like dehumanized like we think think of it as a machine and like it's really just a bunch of people it's like you know when when you know the financial crisis was going down and like the bailouts are being organized and firms were going under like if you read the books about the crisis it was like a bunch of people in a room like freaking out and like the the results of that freak out are like the reason why we don't have Lehman Brothers and Bear Stearns and why like so much of the banking sector looks different. Like these are human decisions. Yeah. And so I feel like to understand the systemic stuff and of course it's helpful to have people who will explain the, the mechanics of how various parts of the financial industry work. And I think that's very valuable, but it also helps to understand like who these people are and what their personality types are like and why they make the decisions they make and to be able to, to, See, like, you know, behind every merger and every deal is like a rivalry or a, a hatred or or a, or a love or something. I mean, these are like deeply human dramas that we've managed to turn into this like mechanistic thing. And I don't think it really is that. I've been really enjoying the um, two guys who are both um, putting money. Oh, fuck, I'm going to forget the name. What is the vitamin like company that's like a pyramid scheme? Herbalife. Herbalife. They like... <laughs> pissing match between <laughs> shorting and putting money into right. Herbalife, life, which is a s- entirely unquestionably like a scam. But uh, <laughs> it just like, it shows every petty human element of investing. But like everything is that like, it, it's not always as blatant as, yeah. as those two guys fighting over Herbalife. But like, you know, most deals that you read about in the papers, like the actual, like if you could actually find the story behind the deal, it would almost like shock you every time. It's like, you know, this guy like wants to do a favor for like his college buddy. So he buys his company or like there, it's all kinds of human stuff like that. It's not always informed by market dynamics. And I think to understand wall street, it's like to reduce it to a machine almost like takes like, it like removes the agency from the people who are making the decisions. So speaking of agency, uh, I don't know how much time you've been spending over the last four years with these people, but there's eight of them. So that has to be <laughs> a lot of time. What what are you doing with um, what are you doing with your life now? Now that, that I have now that all you don't have to back. like, you know, like <laughs> meet people in coffee shops and hear about how they haven't slept for two days. I mean, how, like how many hours a day do you like how uh, during the period when you were in the heat of this book? What? How much of your life was spending time with these people? A lot. I mean, part of the the problem was that they just didn't have much time outside of work. So you know, it wasn't like I could 
follow them at work. They weren't, I wasn't going to go into their office. So a lot of times it was sort of catching them at odd moments or at 11, yeah. 11 p.m. on a Sunday or something like that. Um, but there was a lot of time and, uh, you know, many hours with each of them. And I feel like, um, you know, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't always clear to me, like, what was going to happen afterwards. And I think probably I will, I will stay fairly close with some of them. I will grow apart from others. I'm not sure yet. It's, it's been less yeah. than a week since this book came out. So I don't know quite what the fallout will be, but now I've actually, I'm, you know, I don't live in New York anymore. Oh, where, uh, where do you live? I live in the Bay area. So ah. I'm, I'm, I've, uh, what prompted that move? Uh, I, I was, uh, I wanted to go report on tech, and also um, my girlfriend uh, was in a PhD program at Berkeley. What are you gonna? What do you want to write about with technology? Like, what's what's your next step? I don't know. I sort of want to take a little break and figure that out. I mean, I I've been people have suggested, you know, why don't you do Silicon Valley next? I almost feel like it's sort of the same story. Like, yeah, I, I recently wrote a story for San Francisco Magazine. Um, about how how like Wall Street bankers are all moving into tech now to like sort of follow the gold rush and so it's not even sort of like just symbolically the same thing it's yeah. like in a lot of cases it's literally the same people um, so I don't know if I'll, I'll end up doing that I'm you know I'm still batting around ideas but like I just you know I uh, eventually I want to stop like covering rich white people like that would be <laughs> so you moved to california uh yeah i mean the the difficulty it seems like with writing about technology in, in the way that you've you've been writing these books is like it moves too fast yeah i mean by while you were copy editing the book you'd be like snapchat whoa and people would be like what the fuck are you talking about right, those exactly. guys are that's went out of business two years ago <laughs> right right this the pace of the publishing world makes books about tech uh relatively hard to do um well, thank you very much for coming in. Thanks for having me. Uh, we'll be back next week. And that was a long-form podcast. Uh, thanks to Kevin Roos for coming in during his book tour. Thanks to my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. A very uh, emotional thank you to Lauren Kirchner, our longtime editor. This is her last show. Don't um, go, Lauren. <laughs> she's been really instrumental to um, making this show happen. And we will miss her very much, but um, she's welcome to come by anytime. She's going to be taking over uh, The Baffler uh, as the managing editor. So um, Godspeed to you, Lauren, and thanks again to our intern, Sarah Button. We'll be back next week. Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Teen Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Teen Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com. Support for this show comes from Fundrise. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. 
For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com fox. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com flagship. This is a paid advertisement.